Monks are adept warriors of discipline and skill who have trained and honed themselves into perfected instruments. Druids are masters of nature and primeval magics, capable of transforming themselves into beasts. You put them together, and you get... Well, you get karate bears. Monk druids harness the forces of nature and tap into the potential within themselves to make for some incredibly skilled animal warriors with stunning fists, tusks, and sometimes hooves. So stick around for today's video if that sounds interesting to you. The wild shape focus strategy for 5e druid builds is powerful but can lack the resilience and damage output needed to be viable at higher levels. Conversely, monk survivability can drop off at later levels, and having access to the druid's bag of hit points for wild shapes can be an invaluable resource you can use to stay alive. All that, and you'll get to do martial arts as the critter of your choice, and who wouldn't want to be a karate bear or a jujitsu octopus? Maybe you have something else in mind. Both the monk and the druid use wisdom as a primary ability score, so you're not stretched between stats here. It's a solid choice that works both ways, and you can easily make it a monk with a touch of druid, or a druid with a touch of monk, depending on what you want to go for. But what exactly are the downsides? Well, both the druid and the monk have powerful features that scale with their levels. By multiclassing, our martial arts die goes up slower, and our access to more powerful druid spells and wild shapes comes later. A straight druid will have more powerful spell casting, and a straight monk will have a better martial arts attack die. Both classes also rely heavily on their bonus actions. We have some ways to best optimize around that, but you'll still have situations where you want to wild shape and flurry of blows in the same round, and you simply can't due to the conflicting action economy. Natural weapons are also not really a monk weapon, so a lot of monk abilities won't quite really function well, especially in wild shape. And fundamentally speaking, multi-class options are automatically foregoing the higher-end features that you would otherwise gain in a single class. A multi-class character takes longer to get to key features, and in general will feel a bit lagging compared to a single-class character, especially when it comes to ability score increases. But when exactly does the Druid Monk start to kick in? The short answer for a Druid Monk multi-class character is class level 4. With two levels in Monk and two levels in Druid, you'll gain the core class features and even many of the archetype features we care about for these builds. There are some fun functionalities we get later on, but you can consider the builds working as early as 4th level. There are two very different takes on how to build a monk druid that incidentally care about similar features and class abilities from both classes. Starting with significant monk features, we have unarmored defense. Monks get an AC equal to 10 plus dexterity mod plus their wisdom mod. This works even while in wild shape and will make our priorities for our animal forms very weird because we can ignore their normal AC and substitute our own. We get to use our own wisdom modifier, but if we're in wild shape, we use the creature's dexterity. This puts us in the strange situation where if we're doing the build that is most, well, mostly druid with a touch of monk, we actually don't care about our dexterity and can pour all of our points into wisdom instead. Next we have martial arts and key. Martial arts are the core of what monk gameplay is all about, and while in practice they tend to work pretty simply, there are a lot of fringe rules that come up when we try to multi-class with them. The sad truth is that natural weapons, such as those you'd use in wild shape, don't count as simple or martial weapons, and they're not unarmed strikes either. There's also no way in the rules as written that we can treat them as monk weapons. Your DM might allow a little bit of tweaking of the rules here and there, but for now, know that practically every part of the monk's kit and your key abilities will work in wild shape, but you won't be able to make a free unarmed strike when you make an attack using a wild shape's natural attack. 
You can still Flurry of Blows, though, just so long as you make a single natural attack or even a creature's multi-attack option so that you can also Flurry of Blows. Next, we have Unarmored Movement. Very simply, monks get to move faster, and this bonus applies while you're wild-shaped as well. It's not an absolutely needed feature, but it definitely helps our martial combat strategy if we can position and reposition ourselves very easily. And then we have the self-explanatory extra attack. Monks, like most martial classes, pick up an extra attack feature at 5th level. If we're using wild shapes, this is kind of an iffy benefit, as extra attack does not work as a wild shape multi-attack. It can let us make two attacks with a natural weapon, though. And then we have Monastic Tradition. There are a few options for your monk archetype, and what you go with will mainly depend on if you're primarily going to focus on the druid's wild shape feature. For now, know that we care quite a bit about which tradition you select, and particularly the features you initially gain with the selection at third level. Now let's move on to the significant druid features that we care about, starting with the big one, Wild Shape. And I could probably do a whole video about Wild Shape for even a normal druid, all of the weirdness and applications, and if that's something that you want, please let me know down in the comments. It also has some very strange interactions with our monk features that will take a bit more explaining, but one way or another, your build cares about Wild Shape, so just know that for now. Next, we have Spellcasting. As Druids are primarily spellcasters, and even a small dip into Druid provides access to powerful cantrips, healing spells, and highly damaging concentration spells. Druids aren't normally blaster casters, but if you can maintain concentration, you can deal huge amounts of damage over time using spells like Moonbeam and Call Lightning. And then we have Druid Circle. We care a ton about our Druid archetype here, and it's really just a choice between two options, Circle of the Moon or Circle of Spores. Circle of the Moon is the go-to Wild Shape focus archetype, and is what we want to go with if we focus on our Druid half and doing Flurry of Blows as a bear. Circle of Spores, on the other hand, uniquely adds a bonus d6 of necrotic damage to every melee attack we make, and that includes all those unarmed monk strikes. We go for the fungus on builds that can focus more on our monk capabilities with a dip into Druid. Both monks and Druids care about essentially the same primary scores, Wisdom and Dexterity and they both have a secondary concern for constitution. However, depending on how we build this multiclass, our priority for these scores skews quite a bit. If we plan on primarily focusing on our monk features with a touch of druid, then all of the above applies as normal. We want our wisdom and dexterity as high as possible, with constitution as our third highest score. However, if we are going to focus on our wild shape ability and plan on spending most of our combat time entirely in a wild shape, then strangely we don't care about dexterity or constitution since our physical scores will be replaced with those of whatever beast we change into. That leaves just Wisdom as one of our core stats that should get all of our attention. Wisdom drives our spellcasting out of combat, and in combat it will increase our AC thanks to the monk's unarmored defense feature. And regardless of your build, you can regard strength, intelligence, and charisma as dump stats as they'll have very little impact on our abilities. Lastly, these are scores lower than we'd want them to be anyway, but the minimum requirements for Druid and Monk multiclassing are at least 13 Dexterity and 13 Wisdom. So for the build to function at all, you'll need to hit at least these minimums. When it comes to what race you should play, if you really want to focus on the Wild Shape plan, then really only Wisdom matters to us, but going for a more balanced build or a Heavy Monk build means we should be taking both Wisdom and Dexterity into account. The following races here have either a bonus in Dexterity or in Wisdom, making them ideal choices. My favorite would probably be the Kenku, given all the stealthy features it gets and the role-playing opportunities that come from speaking in mimicry, but I am curious which one best works for you guys. You guys always seem to have very interesting ideas for builds in mind, so let me know down in the comments. 
Most multi-class builds focus on a single synergy with a few variations on the same theme. But for the Monk Druid build, we get two vastly different strategies to go for. So let's get into that. First, we have the Fungal Monk build, which is also the name of the guy I always look for at music festivals. We'll go over the simpler of the two builds first, which for the most part plays like a standard monk, but with a lovely necrotic bonus. To get this build started, we need at least two levels of Druid, and we need to select the Circle of Spores. The Circle of Spores gives us a lovely mushroom motif to start, but the feature we really care about is Symbiotic Entity. Rather than transforming into an animal, Symbiotic Entity lets us buff ourselves with mushroom power for the next 10 minutes as an action. While we're mushroom buffed, we gain 4 temporary hit points for Druid level, and every single melee attack we make deals an additional 1d6 necrotic bonus damage. This functions with things like Flurry of Blows, and the potential damage output we can get from this is... rather insane. With two levels of Druid and two levels of Monk, our Mushroom Enhanced Flurry of Blows with a Quarterstaff will be dealing an average of 29 damage, 1d8 plus 2d4 plus 3d6 plus 9, over three attacks, assuming a 16 dexterity. This all gets even more nasty once we hit with our extra attack, and when we get our Martial Arts die to increase. Even just the bonus attack from Standard Martial Arts really pushes the damage output through each extra melee weapon attack. We also get to utilize our reaction due to the Halo of Spores feature we also gain at our second Druid level. Whenever somebody moves within 10 feet of us or starts their turn there, we can have them choke down some spores as a reaction, forcing them to make a con save or to take 1d4 necrotic damage, which is doubled to 2d4 if we've got our mushroom power flowing. It'll usually be weaker than normal opportunity attacks, but it's a lot more dependable. The catch to all of this is that we only keep our bonus necrotic damage up so long as those temporary hit points are remaining. The other catch is activating our mushroom powers takes an action, which seriously limits its combat application. However, since it lasts 10 minutes and Wild Shape uses recharge on a short rest, you should reasonably be able to mushroom up whenever you think combat is likely. And you should have a round or two of your extra damage to stack on before an enemy gets a good enough wallop in to soak up all of your temporary hit points. With that in mind, I recommend the Way of the Drunken Master for our Monistic Tradition as a solid choice on this build. The Drunken Technique feature lets us do our damage and then drunkenly scurry away without reprisal, which should hopefully make sure we keep these temporary hit points as long as possible. Ideally, you'll want as many monk levels as possible for a larger martial arts die and more attacks. But more druid levels means access to better druid spells and more of those temporary hit points. I found the right mix at minimum to be 2 druid levels and 18 monk levels, and at most 5 druid levels and 15 monk levels. 5 druid levels gets you a solid 20 temporary hit points and up to 3rd level druid spells. And then we have the Kung Fu Direwolf build. This is the more complex of the two builds, because for this we want to focus on our wild shape ability, but with a dash of martial arts. For this build, we're primarily a druid with just a dip of monk, and we want to spend most of our time in beast form instead of our normal form. To start with, we'll be going with the Circle of the Moon feature, as it's the mandatory option for any build that wants to use their wild shapes for combat. Then, all we really want from our monk levels is the monk unarmed defense feature gained at first level, and the key feature we gain at second level that has the Flurry of Blows ability wrapped up into it, along with the Patient Defense and Step of the Wind abilities. All of these features still function in wild shape, though they interact in some decidedly strange ways. We don't technically need to get up to three levels of monk for this build, so we don't necessarily have a monk archetype in mind. But if you do, I recommend going for the Long Death Tradition, as it will give you regular boosts of temporary hit points as you tear through enemies as a martial artist capybara, or whatever other kind of creature reflects your worldview. Fundamentally, this strategy is the same for a normal Circle of the Moon Druid. 
You stay in wild shape in most situations and fight using the higher CR options that Circle of the Moon provides. For builds touching on Monk but focusing on our Druid wild shapes, we want to optimize for damage output and survivability when choosing our beast form. Unarmored defense means we should favor forms with a high dexterity score, since that will typically mean a better AC. We should also be very aware of the strange action interactions at play here. Uh, for instance, a beast's multi-attack does not use the attack action and instead is its own weird action that just so happens to include attacking. And I, I know that's confusing. Uh, I think 10% of D&D is this esoterically confusing. Our Flurry of Blows ability can only function when we use the attack action specifically, so we want to prioritize creatures with a single powerful attack we can make and then flurry with, rather than beasts that rely on a ton of smaller hits using a multi-attack. 5e druids limit our access to wild shapes by challenge rating and, at least at early levels, by their swim and fly speeds. For ease of reference, we'll categorize the optimal forms by your druid levels. We're also going to assume a wisdom of 18 for those builds, as you'll be wanting to get to 18 wisdom as soon as possible. Also be aware of each beast's strength and dexterity scores when it comes to your unarmed strikes. Martial arts say we can use our dexterity instead of strength for them, but we obviously want to use whichever is highest when we do our flurry of blows attacks. At only two druid levels, you'll still have access to comparatively quite powerful challenge rating one beasts, but you're still limited by swim and fly speed. The following beasts are likely your best options at two druid levels. First, we're going to start with the Direwolf. With a very chunky 37 hit points, an AC of 16 thanks to unarmored defense, pack tactics, and an attack that also inflicts prone, Direwolves are going to be your go-to hard hitter for a long time. That prone effect will also trigger before your flurry of blows, meaning you'll likely get advantage on all of those melee attacks. And then we have the Giant Hyena. Think of this as your tanky option for when you just need to take hits. It normally has a natural armor AC of 12, but our unarmored defense bumps that up to 16. It has a whopping 45 hit points and has the same damage output of the Direwolf, just minus the pack tactics. It also has a fun Rampage ability where it gets to make an additional attack if it finishes an enemy off, which makes it an attractive option if you know you're going to face numerous but weak enemies. Rampage uses our bonus action, however, but think of it as a decent option when we're just out of key points. And then we have the Spider King. This one is a bit of a stretch that your DM may not allow, I understand that, but it's a variant of the standard giant spider from the Out of the Abyss adventure, which is much better and has just, well, it has an extra head. It technically meets all the limitations for Wild Shape, but it's significantly better than many of the other options at this challenge rating. It normally has a natural AC of 14, but with our unarmored defense, we can get that up to 17. It also has 44 hit points and a bite that can potentially deal 3d8 plus 3 damage if they fail a con save. As a 4th level druid, we don't get any higher challenge ratings, but we do finally get to take beasts with a swimming speed. Mostly, our best options are the same as the two druid levels, but with a couple nasty additions. First, we have the giant octopus. Giant octopi are beefy creatures with 52 hit points and an 11 natural armor bonus improved to 15 by our unarmored defense. They almost have enough hit points to justify their use out of the water as well. Their attack has a 15-foot reach and has a very nasty and basically free grapple attached to it, making this a promising grapple monster if not just a damage sponge. Also, a very high swim speed makes this an obvious choice if you're actually underwater. And then we have the giant toad, which is a bit of an iffy one compared to the giant octopus. You drop all the way back to 39 hit points with an unarmored defense, you're still at a 15 AC as well. What makes it interesting is the swallow ability that can let you literally eat smaller targets and boil them down with acid damage. Still probably inferior overall to the giant octopus, but still worth considering if you're in a mixed land and water environment or have a single big bad evil guy that you just 
want to eat. At our sixth druid level, we finally get up to challenge rating two beasts, which radically increases our damage output and survivability, though we still can't take anything with a flying speed for a couple more levels. Next, we have the giant constrictor snake, and I tend to think of this as a sort of direct upgrade to the giant octopus, as you'll be using this in most of the same situations. Giant constrictor snakes have 60 hit points, an AC of 16 thanks to unarmored defense, a swim speed, and a big dangerous grapple attack. It's also got a beefy plus four strength bonus, which is particularly nice for this snake's very unarmed strikes. Next, we have the giant elk with 42 hit points and an AC of 17, again, due to unarmored defense. It isn't bad, but the 60 foot movement speed and charge ability means we can smack things for 4d6 plus six and follow it up with our flurry of blows hopefully with advantage if we manage to knock them prone. And then we have the Hunter Shark with its 45 hit points and an AC of 15, due to unarmed defense, and it feels pretty basic at first, but the Blood Frenzy feature will mean practically every attack you make will be at advantage. Take this if you're fighting with high AC opponents while underwater. And then we have the Relic Sloth, which was also my nickname in high school. This is technically setting lock to the Strixhaven setting, but with a nice DM, they, they might allow it. It has the highest hit points I could find for this challenge rating at 76, but due to the negative dexterity, we'll be stuck with a 13 AC for the unarmored defense. Like others here, it has a solid grappling attack, and you should definitely consider this in situations where hit points are better than AC. As an 8th level druid, we don't improve in challenge rating, but we do finally gain access to flying beasts, which drastically improves our mobility and gives us one pretty great option in particular. That special option being the Quetzalcoatlus. This flying dinosaur's stats don't look great at first, with only 30 hit points and a 15 AC, thanks to unarmored defense, but since it has the flyby feature and an insane 80-foot fly speed, you'll be able to harass anything that can't fight at range with impunity. Each dive attack bite will do an amazing attack with 6d6 plus 2 damage, and we can still make our flurry of blows on the fly making this my uncontested top pick for your flying beast of choice. As a ninth level druid, we finally get to take challenge rating three beasts, which gives us a damage increase and upgraded hit points yet again. Starting with the giant snapping turtle, found in the Tomb of Annihilation, this big snappy boy has a decent AC of 17, even without unarmored defense, and a solid 75 hit points, making this your go-to tank for when you just need to stay alive. It also has a surprisingly fast swim speed and an attack that will do 4d6 plus 4, meaning you won't sacrifice much on the damage front either. And then we have the Killer Whale. With a whopping 90 hit points and a bit of a sad 14 AC, this is a giant slab of blubber that will definitely help you out in combat. The bite deals 5d6 plus 4 damage, and with a speedy 60-foot swim speed, you'll be a deadly threat in the water. As we're the mighty circle of the moon druid, we get the elemental wild shape feature with our 10th druid level and access to the incredibly powerful elemental forms. Each of the four elemental forms have their own ups and downs, which we should go through real quick. The air elemental has the least amount of hit points out of the bunch with only 90, but unarmored defense pushes us up with extra defense to a hefty 19 AC, well past their normal natural armor bonus. The big draw here is the 90 foot fly speed, which is obviously amazing in any situation where maneuverability is important. You can even move through narrow pinholes and enemies. The whirlwind attack is interesting, but not great against most solid targets you'll be fighting at this level. Take this when the fly speed is needed or you're facing a mob of weaker foes. The earth elemental is easily the sturdiest of the bunch with 126 hit points, but sadly because of the terrible dexterity score, we'll be stuck with an innate 17 AC. The big draw here is the earth glide ability. It only counts non-magical and non-work stone, but that still leaves a lot of situations and caves you can stroll right through. 
Take this one if the area is earth glidable or if you just need a solid wall of tank hit points. The fire elemental is arguably the best damage dealer of the bunch. Your touches will do 2d6 plus 5 fire damage but will also light them on fire for another 1d10 every round. Sneakily, your unarmored defense also pushes this to a 17 AC, and with 102 hit points, you're still quite tanky. Take this form if you're interested in doing as much DPS as possible. With the water elemental, we have an unarmored defense that gives us 16 AC, and with 114 hit points, this is a solid tank option. Water tank. Water tank option. There's a joke there somewhere. Functionally, this is similar to the air elemental, and this is your best choice in an underwater environment. It also vies for the best damage dealer, as the Whelm attack can potentially hold enemies down and keep them down, dealing 2d8 plus 4 every round so long as you keep grappling them. As a 12th level druid, we gain access to challenge rating 4, but since we already gained access to the challenge rating 5 elementals a couple levels ago, I was hard-pressed to find any animal form that came close to competing with our existing options. I dug deep though and found one option that gives elementals a run for their money. The two-headed plesiosaurus. I found this guy squirreled away in the tortle package and it's exactly what it sounds like. A plesiosaurus with two heads. It has 100 hit points and with our unarmored defense it gets a solid 16 AC. You get one attack with each head giving us two bites, each dealing 3d6 plus 6. We can't use both attacks and also flurry of blows, but it's a decent option. We also get advantage on a ton of conditions due to the two heads, as I mentioned before, and a decent swim speed. I'm not saying this is better than the elementals, but it's on par and it's probably visually cooler. At 15 druid levels, the upgraded challenge rating 5 beasts is likely our final increase if we're running the build that dips into monk, but we still do get some pretty good options here. Starting with the Brontosaurus, if you have the room, the Gargantuan Brontosaurus can do a truly impressive 68 plus 5 damage with its tail, and it can also make a stomp attack that adds a trip effect at the cost of 1d8 damage. It has 15 AC, 121 hit points, and the damage potential outsteps the elementals, so this big dino is usually the better option unless you really need one of the elemental abilities, or the map just doesn't accommodate this sort of creature. At 18 druid levels, this is the tip top of our beast with a challenge rating of 6, but you'll only be getting this far if you only take a 2 level dip into monk. Most campaigns aren't getting to the 19th level or the 20th level anyway, so it's unlikely one way or the other, but in case you do, it's mammoth time. Yes, you can actually change into a mammoth, which is a strict upgrade to the charge-in and stomp beasts that occupy a lot of slots on this list. With 126 hit points and our unarmored defense, that does also manage to bring it up to an AC of 13. It has a trampling charge move with a very high DC of 18, so you should reliably be able to get this big charge and stomp combo off at least once per fight with 4d8 plus 4d10 plus 14 damage plus your two flurry of blows attacks. The big question is if playing a mammoth at the tail end of your campaign is worth losing those sweet primal path buffs for. And, I mean, if you're multi-classing like this, I assume that the mammoth was something you wanted. So, if you have the mammoth, I assume the mammoth was an end goal of some kind for you. The Monk Druid is a combo that makes a lot of sense narratively, at least in terms of what typically motivates these types of characters on a broad sense. Thankfully, this seems to appear in the mechanics of combining them as well. The one time I saw this build at my table for more than a few sessions was played by someone who, for a lack of a better comparison, basically played a fantasy version of Ace Ventura. And I mainly bring this up just to remind you that in basically any multiclass, there is room for mechanical and narrative weirdness that also seems to just 
kind of work. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Be sure to like and subscribe because we put out new videos like this every week. And if you guys are making a Druid Monk character that you're proud of, or if you guys have any other ideas that you'd like us to cover here on the show, please let us know down in the comments. My name is Patrick Ferguson from Skull Splitter Dice. Thanks again for watching, and until next time, farewell.